saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. The word that becomes most important to me theologically is the word precarity mm. and learning from the people in the faith tradition that were that embraced precarity as not a thing to be overcome, but a thing to be lived alongside. I would say that has been probably like the biggest theological shift in my thinking. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I am your host, John Williamson, and I'm really excited about this week's guest. But before we get to that, if you are new to the podcast, then welcome. I'm very glad that you're here. For all things related to the podcast, check out our website, www.thedeconstructionist.com. There you can link to us on social media, read the blog, listen to our entire back catalog of episodes. You can snag a t-shirt or a pie glass from our web store. Or if you'd like to uh, support us financially, you can join our Patreon family uh, through there as well. Uh, if you enjoy the show, though, and you just want to support us just in, the, in an easy, easy way, uh, consider going to iTunes and giving us five stars and leaving us a nice review. It helps us get exposure. This week's episode features music from the artist Lydia Luce, and I really hope I pronounced her last name correctly, so I'm sorry in advance if I didn't, but she's an incredible artist uh, who... Uh, I, I believe, I, if I read this correctly, has her master's degree from UCLA in the viola, which is a uh, in the family of violins uh, and, and cellos, and you know it's a woodwind instrument. Anyway, uh, very beautiful music. She's extremely talented. So go out and support her if you can. Uh, you can find her music anywhere good music is found. So go check her out. Uh, this week, I welcome Kate Bowler to the show. Kate is a best-selling author and podcaster. You can listen to her show, Everything Happens, anywhere you find your podcasts. Kate is an absolute joy, and we talked all about just how hard it is simply being a human being and working through grief along the way. So do yourself a favor and grab a copy of Kate's brand new book, No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear. So without further ado, Kate freaking bowler i'm looking back at last year's love oh i thought it fell in back we gave it a shot but i am constantly missing the more all right welcome to the deconstructionist podcast kate it's so exciting to have you on oh my gosh i'm so glad to be here well, thanks for doing it, and uh, thanks for taking some time out of your your day. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about your background first. This is the first time you've been on. I'm, I've been really excited to have you. Uh, so Aww, tell people thanks. a little bit about your background. Sure, I'm a Gemini. I was no, just, <laughs> just joking. I think that stuff's pernicious. I um, well, I'm the kind of Canadian who brings it up this early, I guess, in the conversation. So I'm from <laughs> Canada. I'm a historian. I uh, come from a long line of just very, you know, poorly paid academics. And it feels like, it feels like God's work, you know. Um, I teach at a seminary, Duke Divinity School. So most of the students I have are pastors or nonprofit workers or do-gooders of some kind. And um, yeah, it was kind of on a pretty traditional track in my life. I was, I just thought my dream was to be a professor and to create a feudal empire of really grateful graduate students. And I would live in a Gothic tower and, uh, I kind of did have that sort of planned out. Um, but then I've had a, just a number of, I won't even call them like curveballs, just sort of landmines along the way. I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer when I was 35, which was, um, absolutely, uh, truly unbelievable because I just have had no cancer in my family. And, uh, and then since then I haven't just been writing academic books. I just 
uh, I felt sort of like I needed to practice different versions of telling the truth. And so I became really interested in facilitating conversations about the true and beautiful and hard things that we find in difficult times. So I have a podcast called Everything Happens, period, after my book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And uh, and yeah, so a lot of the, and I have a, a project here at the Divinity School, the Everything Happens Project, and we just mostly create faith and media resources around how to help people have those kinds of conversations where it's not just the endless um, bright side in culture, but that we're able to offer like that, that thicker language to have the the space to hold both, both true things, you know, in the same breath, which is that life is really beautiful and that life is also just really hard. Yeah. It, it seems like, and we've talked about this on the podcast before that, um, when things like that happen, when cancer happens, when a death in the family happens, that's unexpected. When any kind of these like major life events occur that we don't expect that are, you know, just horrific or sad or, or whatever that we, we really kind of lack the language or lack the, um, faculties to, to deal with that, um, beyond these kind of empty platitudes and, there's whole books out there, especially within the religious realm for like, Oh, it's just God's plan or whatever. And you want to throw up and throat punch them at the same time. Like, how do we, how do we get around that? Like, how do we, what do we, what, what are the useful things? What, I mean, cause people in those situations, like they don't want to hear that, you know, they want to hear, I love you. I'm sorry. And, and more so like listening Mm -hmm. and and shutting up and just being there for the person. So how do we kind of counteract that, uh, that feudal kind of, nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) I guess, um, well, I mean, one of the ways that I've tried to figure out how to change the conversation a little bit, this sounds very like, um, I'm just changing the conversation, John. Uh, but I, I've really, as a historian, like this, this, I love that this gets to be part of my job where I thought, well, if we could figure out a little bit more about the history of each kind of cliche and each saying sort of pull them apart a little bit, like first recognize them as, um, cultural scripts that we have. Like there's a reason why we say that crap to each other. And it's just cause it's right there in our back pocket and we've heard it a million times. And then we find ourselves accidentally, you know, explaining that God needed an angel. And then you're like, wait, angels are created beings. And God does right. not in fact use the death of our loved ones as a choir. Um, and so that's that's partly how I've been trying to frame my work and my thinking, I guess, is to is to kind of look at each one and hold them up to the light and and try to figure out exactly your question, like where's the wisdom in it, and 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 in what way does it create a, an overwhelming obstacle? So maybe I'll just like start with one that we could like throw out, and but I guess one of the most well, I, maybe I could start at my the the beginning of my rage, which was. Um, how complicated it felt when people said, uh, like I was just diagnosed and a woman came to the door. She was a neighbor and she was trying to be kind and she offered my husband food. And I'm meanwhile upstairs with, uh, looking absolutely wasted, shrunk down and depleted from um, months of chemo. And she cheerily hands over a casserole and says, well, I mean, I mean, everything happens for a reason. Ugh. And then my sweet, um, not very sweet uh, husband just has that perfect tone of voice. And he was like, I'd love to hear it, Linda. I mean, I, I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear the reason my wife is dying. And I, uh, and that, it's such, a, it's such a natural thing to say. Because what I hear someone saying is um, all kinds of impulses. Um, there's a hidden causality that I swear will bring you comfort. Um, there, we still live in a world that feels accessible to us and not just overwhelmed by fear. Um, and also there's all kinds of, um, metaphysical theories going on there and implicit theologies about like, yes, but like, to what degree do we imagine that there is divine causality in our lives? And, and even if there is like, do I have that much access to it to be able to describe it to you? And that, I mean, that'll, that will really take you down the path of like, which metaphysical tradition and theological tradition do you come from? Are you very reformed? Are you very, 
not reformed are you very new age i mean it's kind of a, a theological inventory test there yeah and and i think especially in the western view it seems that there's this notion and and you know you can get into the whole idea of like the prosperity gospel and and god just wants us all to be rich and happy and get everything we ever wanted but the reality of life is that just isn't it like that doesn't happen a lot of times we don't get what we want and oftentimes you know we're not we don't end up being rich we don't end up working the job our dream job um, so how much of it kind of stems from sort of this uh, Western interpretation of the Gospels and, and just Christianity in general? I wouldn't say it's very Western um, because there's probably a, like a number of different threads that we could pull out that are both uh, Eastern and well, I think that those are two, just too flat, I guess. So I would say the primary um, identifying, you know, through lines we can pull out are, are one that it's very deeply American that, I mean, it's not even North American. I won't even put this on Canada and Mexico. <laughs> it's uh, that it, um, American beliefs in right, in the, in righteous individualism, in bootstrapping, in, um, a, a self-made man in particular, who's able to conquer the world as he sees it, a very like frontier theology, has a very long tradition in the United States. And that um, that kind of bootstrapping theology has, has really found its way into almost all of our forms of Christianity, whether we wanted it to or not. Um, it's why we feel shame when we need each other. You know, that's why we feel a little stupid when we're the one who just can't, just can't get it together because we either have like a structural or a obstacle or just something that could never be undone. Um, so yeah, it's very American. Um, it's, uh, it has a long history inside of, um, Pentecostal and charismatic traditions for, for reasons I think you and I would find both lovely and like some question marks. And, and one of it is, um, especially when the, the, the sort of nascent Pentecostal movement was coming together in the late 19th century and early 20th century, part of their desire was to say, wait, how do we know if our prayer is working? And also, couldn't we just see God's action at play? Couldn't we just open open up the category of miracle and see something lovely happen? And so very early on, these beliefs about not just like expecting God to work, but demanding and looking at these different prayers as formulas to prompt God to action really, really took deep roots inside Pentecostalism and then eventually became the beginning, especially, you know, after World War II of what we can think of as the prosperity gospel, this like very well-formed belief that God's going to give you health and wealth and, and, and Joel Osteen. Um, <laughs> God gives Joel Osteen to each person. It comes with a pamphlet. He does. Um, it's, a, it's a good gift. It's a good, good God. Um, I guess the other major tradition that we have to look at is the rise of um, the metaphysical tradition, which is this, I mean, there's all kinds of versions of the metaphysical tradition, but the one that was especially American that grew up in the late 19th century was the belief that our minds are actually these really powerful spiritual incubators and that whatever, and so all the words that you're like, to that you can manifest, that you can align yourself, that you can, um, that it was basically that God is, God's, the divinity is something that we are only separated by, by uh, just a few degrees. And that if we could just sort of kind of click into place that we could feel that divine flow, and then we think and speak positively, there's all uh, variations of it, but that, um, but that good things then happen when you tap into this good source. And that is, uh, I mean, that is not, in this case, just um, imagined as like a Western theology. We can see it all over forms of Neo-Buddhism, um, any, any well, Stoicism is inherently Western, but all kinds of people with recent discoveries of having figured out that Marcus Aurelius seemed really smart lately, and they'd also just seen Gladiator, the movie again. Um, <laughs> but all kinds of New Agey versions of e mishmashes of East and West really have that... Um, that uh, a, a good vibe. I think I was wearing a good vibes only shirt, so I just looked down there for a minute. But a very good vibes only theology. Yeah, yeah. I, you touched on prayer a little bit, and I I, I listened to your uh, your recent interview. Um, I'm trying to think who it was with. Now I, I wrote it down because it was so good. Oh, thanks. Um, 
it was your most recent episode. I'll find it. My computer's running very slow today, but, um, uh, but you talked to, you touched on prayer a little bit and that's been such a complicated relationship that a lot of people have, especially when they're kind of going through, uh, for lack of a better word, kind of a deconstruction of, of your faith. And you can call it whatever you want. We're not, we're not married to that term at all. Um, you can call it a spiritual journey, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, a basic questioning of your inherited beliefs, whatever you want. But when people start to go through that kind of situation, one of the things that becomes very complicated is the relationship with prayer, because we're told from a young age, uh, a lot of times that, you know, prayer is, you know, that's the thing that's going to heal, you know, your, your friend or your family member of cancer. And, yeah. and, and, and horribly, sometimes we even hear, well, the reason that they didn't get cured is because, you know, we didn't pray hard enough or yeah. your faith wasn't strong enough and all these very harmful notions. So how did prayer change for you when you were going through this, this stuff? Because you also, one, one thing um, was, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were also tr- attempting to get pregnant before your diagnosis. And that was, yeah. that was a challenge as well. And so you had a lot of things going on that kind of disrupted your life at the time. Yeah. Yeah, it did really start to, I mean, I wouldn't say it went well for very long before it started going very badly. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know that because honestly right away I was like, oh crap, I should also mention I have a debilitating joint disorder and, <laughs> and then I, oh, gosh. yeah, and then infertility was the worst. And then, um, I really had had this great minute right before my diagnosis where, where things had really gotten better. I... I had managed to get this. I, I had had, um, it's like such a simple thing. I just had overly have overly loose joints. Not that big of a deal, except that it was because of doing all the academic stuff. It had created all this inflammation in my arms and then, but they didn't know that. And then my arms just stopped working. And so then all of a sudden I'm wearing double arm slings to the faith healing rally that I am studying for my book on the prosperity gospel. And I was like, just watching people moths to aflame me where they want so much to be for me to be healed. And then I have proof that I am not yet healed. I was really, I have been feeling like a, like a test of unfaithfulness for like quite a bit now. And, uh, and then I had a hot minute where things were going great. And I had this amazing baby. <laughs> and a baby had giant flashlight eyes. And he's just looks like like cartoons of frogs, you know? <laughs> he's just like un, he's unbelievably cute. <laughs> and uh I was like, all right, that's it. Hashtag blessed. Like I got this on lock. I went through my horrible thing. I got my perspective. People love perspective. And I got it. So and then and things were, and then things were great, and that's the end of this podcast, John. And that's how it, that's how it happened. So and then and so yeah. five step. I'm just going to walk you through my five step plan for how you too can receive a totally overcome to life. Um, yeah, uh, so that didn't go super well. Um, it just kept basically like it just kept coming apart, and uh, it has been hard to figure out what the role of of all of the infrastructure of faith, like should be like, what, what does faith mean if it's not faith for something in particular, like that I will be healed, that I will, that everything will work out. What is prayer? If I can't then say, are you freaking kidding me? Like I am getting the garbage end of, <laughs> of what I thought was supposed to be a pretty great life. And also like, wasn't I kind of good to be totally honest? Like, wasn't I sort of, I'm, I mean, I I met my now husband in Bible camp. Like, when when do the points on all that add up to like a less garbage life? Um, <laughs> so I, I had I had really been trying to think through what prayer is when I was so hurt and so sad and so scared, just mostly so scared. And thankfully, I work at a divinity school, so I do a lot of honestly wandering the hallways, having theological problems that I force other people to like weigh in on, and. Um, and so I, uh, I just had really lovely people who wear clerical collars, like even on Tuesdays, you know, say, um, really encourage me to have the kind of faith that feels more like love and less like certainties and a lot less like formulas. So I 
when I, I guess, start praying or pray for other people or pray for myself, I, I like any person who loves the Pentecostal movement, I like to have absolutely wild and unrealistic prayers. I really do. I'm like, God, like heal me. I know you can do it. So that would be nice. God help. And then just say all the deepest needs and questions and hurts. And then simultaneously be like, I guess mostly I'm trying to give you my most honest answer right now. Cause I was kind of embarrassed by how, um, overwhelmed I was by the presence of God when I was in the hospital, like just genuinely overwhelmed. Like, shouldn't this feel like death? And yet somehow God, you are there. And like, why would that be? I'm especially angry right now and sort of think less of you (laughs) And, and, and not having done anything and to feel the Holy Spirit so intensely was a real lesson for me. And that kind of like untangled that mentality I might've had where prayer, like other things, was like a switch that I'd have to flip in order to get God to to give me what I need. And then I realized, oh, okay, well, I guess this is just all love. And so I, I have to settle into that, the interdependence of that, the capriciousness of that, that you can feel it and then it'll be gone. And you're like, are you kidding me? So yeah, I guess that was a long way of saying that prayer feels more like love. That's beautiful. I, in the last year, there are two books that came out. I don't know if you're familiar with that. For me, I think personally were really helpful in regards to prayer. It's uh, Sarah Bessie, who another fellow Canadian who's just uh, uh, a gift to the universe. But yeah. she put out this really great book on prayer, and it's a collection of uh, different types of prayer and the fact that it never occurred to me that prayer could look very different from person to person. Yeah. Some of them were like more like sermons. Some of them were, you know, almost like letters to God. And then Bumi Ladadan, um, who also not, not technically Canadian, but lives in, in Canada. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Um, had a, had a great book out this year too, um, on prayer and hers are, are really just like conversations with God. And some of them are very, very raw and, and kind of raging at mm-hmm. God. Like why, why, you know, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of us can identify with that, but it just kind of opened my eyes to the fact that prayer can look and it's okay that mm-hmm. it looks different from person to person. Um, but it, in, in none of those situations was it sort of this, I don't know, like I, I like to call it the Amazon wish list form mm-hmm. of praying. Yeah. Like, please God, give me this, you know, instead it's this very raw and honest conversation with yeah. the divine and saying, Hey, this is where I'm at. I'm falling apart. And, yeah. Yeah. and this is the most I can give you right now. And that's yeah. okay. Yeah. That's so good. I do love praying with my kid every night because his are so funny. I pray mine and weirdly they sound a lot like sometimes the prayers that I did when I was when I was also 7. Um and I like his prayers cuz at the end they always go something like we started making them more and more elaborate because of, of the things he gets scared of, which which is I think is so good for me where he's like, "And dear God, when I get really scared and I and I want to I want to go sleep, like basically next to our bed. And he's like, and I get really scared. Help me not to be scared of my, and then we just added more and more details. So now he's like, help me not to be terrified of my many, many closets, my many, <laughs> my many belongings, <laughs> the stairs to the basement and all that it contains. <laughs> like we just try to make it. And I have to say, I think that like so much of our fears and all the details, we don't necessarily know what we're scared of and unless we're able to let our fear tell us and and then be able to tell that also to each other and God in prayer. It's nice. Who's gonna turn the lights out when the room gets cold? And who's gonna make the right call when the dream gets old? It's funny how kids can teach us a lot, you know? It, it, kids seem to understand on this very basic, innocent level and and, um, you know, so, so often, you know, that, that really is what it comes down to. It's, it's, we've, we've kind of created this construct of Christianity that's based on certainty. And, and because of course, as a human being, naturally certainty, uh, inconsistency and knowing what's coming next. Oh, it's so nice. Makes me feel it? better. Totally right? it does. Absolutely. But it's like, it's this crazy idea of life because we know as adults, logically speaking, that that's just not the way it goes. Yeah. 
And we, yeah. we know less than, than we actually know, you know, well, some um, people's lives are going great. And I do, I do feel like I relate. I mean, I felt a more compassion when I'm like, Oh, of course you experience certainty. Your life has been wonderful. Your life has been predictable. I just don't have access to that life at this time. Right. Yeah. Joel Osteen, I would imagine is living a pretty sweet life right now. You know, I think like, it's, it's got a lot of, got a lot of predictability. I imagine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talk about just in general, you know, when, when these moments in your life start to kind of shatter this, this sense of certainty and the sense of stability, how did that sort of change your, your view on, on faith in general and, and kind of God and, and just kind of, you know, your idea of, of the world up until that point? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's funny, just the, the, I know we we're just talking about Joel Osteen for a second ago, but I, you know, it really got, it just reminded me that the, the very first um, celebrities of the prosperity gospel had been these um, had been people who really had something awful happen, and then they experienced a miracle in their lives. So, I mean, some of the miracles were like less dramatic than others. There's everybody's always being cured of stuttering, but um, I uh, but um, that that a lot of the kids who became the adults promulgating the prosperity gospel had had been very, very sick or had grown up with a lot of poverty who needed a lot of things and then suddenly found that their lives had come true. And because we're in a 2.0, almost 3.0 um, generation of the prosperity gospel, we don't now have um, like Joel Osteen's dad, John, who had that like, uh, uh, you know, hard knock story growing up. We have a very suburban, um, uh, predictable, uh, upper middle class version that I think that, that makes us feel like our lives were never supposed to have come undone. And, um, I guess that, uh, I just, when you asked about like the, how my view of God has changed, I think I expect different things from life now that I know that, uh, that, that we, we build things and then they come apart and that, um, life unravels and that we're really, we're, we're rarely in a, I mean, we're, we're never in a season of durability. We're always in windows where, you know, that a, a second where you're grateful that your kid is healthy and that you're still able to call your parents on the phone or when you're older that you're able to secure care for yourself. I mean, we're all in this very, I think the word that becomes most important to me theologically is the word precarity and learning from the people in the faith tradition that we're that embraced precarity as not a thing to be overcome, but a thing to be lived alongside. I would say that has been probably like the biggest theological shift in my thinking. I love that. Um, the episode too, that I, I, I definitely want to make mention of uh, that I was referencing earlier is the episode with Kelly Corrigan. Oh yeah. So good. Uh, if people don't know her, I was not familiar with her work. I, I definitely was just instantly a fan. Um, such a great episode. And uh, I do want to mention, you, you talk about kind of the three big things, like that, you know, uh, kind of our understanding of God or the divine. You talk about if God is loving, fair, and powerful, then essentially why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, yeah. Talk about that a little bit. I thought that was a really powerful moment. Well, I solved the problem, the grand grand theodicy at the heart of this, <laughs> the heart of scripture. So, I am uh, happy to unveil that for you right now, John. Perfect. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a big secret, and I've been <laughs> been hiding it under a bushel. Um, well, I guess it's like the. I mean, it's the it's the tragedy at the heart of of our lives, which is that our. I feel like it's always the time where I'm like, I'm sorry to break it to everyone, <laughs> but that our days are numbered, that we're, that finitude is one of the big, um, it is, it is also the story of who we are. It's, it's the thing that makes our loves more real and more bright is because we have to choose them and that then we will, then, then we will lose them. And that, that makes everything, um, meaningful because it was born out of a, whatever thing we pulled out of a vacuum. It's so, um, so our finitude is something that we, we find really hard, I guess, to like lay on this supernatural timeline that we're also given where we're also simultaneously told that this, we're not just a story about us, we're a story about God and we're a story about being pulled into a future with God that we don't 
know nearly enough about, in my opinion. (laughs) And, uh, and, um, and that, that we're offered this, we're given this horrible question, which is why is there no, why is there no good math on this? Like, why, when we look around, do we see, um, that there's something called pediatric oncology because how, how could any kid, how could any kid handle cancer? And then that many times like terrible people get old and have yachts. You know, we just, we live in the heart of this deep question and that we're not really given an, an answer so much as we're given a person who embodies that tragedy with us, who just, who dies, who just comes here and then dies and asks the same question, which is, God, why have you forsaken me? And then, and then somewhere in there is, um, is, is not an answer, but just like a promise that, that somehow, even though God is still somehow always going to stay alongside of us. And that's kind of a, it's like a strange thing not to be handed an answer, (laughs) but to be handed a person and then mostly just to be handed love is so bizarre. But I, um, yeah, I, uh, I guess that's where I, I kind of always, um, I kind of always settle with like the, um, the, the desire to apply a philosophical grid. So there, I mean, I love philosophy, religion. I love historical theology. I love the fact that this has always been our question is God, if you love us, why does this, why is this, why is this not just painful, but unbearable at times? And, um, and that's why we get this, you know, flood of people rushing in to tell you that it will never be unbearable. Don't worry, you'll nothing is ever lost. Uh, it's true, and we've been wrestling with this for centuries, you know. And and unfortunately, that seems to be that seems to be the breaking point for a lot of people when it comes to faith. I've seen a lot of people turn yeah. their back on a life of faith just in general, yeah. just because they can't reconcile the fact that if God is good and all loving and all po- all powerful then why do we continue to see things like Sandy Hook or cancer mm-hmm. or war or, you know, COVID, you know, yeah. most recently, like, why do these things continue to happen? Why must we suffer uh, in this way? Yeah. And, and it stinks because from somebody who still has a life of faith, it's, it's, I feel like the, any answer I could possibly give will be unsatisfying. Totally. I, I I did like struggle for a little bit with whether or not I was allowed to name my new book, something so depressing, but like my answer is there's no cure to being human. Right. And like, I, I, I did, I did sort of like, Hey guys, I'm just wondering if I can (laughs) just say like, there's no cure to being human because I, I think, I mean, part of what I, I love to explore intellectually and spiritually is just, um, the idea that we have applied, we've created these cultural formulas and cliches in order to create a solution to the problem of our humanity, as if as if our lives inherently were problems to be solved, and so we we go uh, we find a Morgan Freeman movie about bucket lists, and then we decide that life is actually just a series of experiences we can collect, and or we decide that life is about um, self-mastery. And then we, uh, you know, buy a million books with the word side hustle in there. And then we're completely convinced that there's like a work week we just have not yet accessed. And something about our inbox feels very compelling. And then we can go the full on, you know, essential oils, goop, <laughs> I mean, right. uh, green smoothie route in which we're positive that it is something about alignment and balance and mental self-mastery, that there's a kind of calm that we haven't accessed, and that will solve the problem of of being human. And I just, I feel like I'm like going to be like the forever doomsday, just the kindly doomsday friend that's like, look, there is just, there is no cure for all of this. There's, there's always going to be want. Even if you solve the problem of pain, you'd never solve the problem of want. People keep saying I should walk it off Good things come and they go Call it a stroke of bad luck It'll go away on its own But I'm alone tonight and I've been crying My back's up against the wall Don't you talk to me about Yeah, it's it's like that that Jim Carrey quote where he said, I, I wish everyone could get everything they always dreamt of so they could realize it's not the answer. And I'm like, oh, Jim Carrey, you wise sage. <laughs> 
but he's but he's right you know it's it's uh there's always going to be something and and there is this notion of we are a society who love a good self-help book you know and there's there's always something it it, it kind of it kind of comes back to this idea like i think that you're alluding to where the, the reason that we're not healthy or that we're not getting what we want or we're not a millionaire is because there's something that we're not doing, Yeah, you know, and this thing can help you do it, whether it's the secret or, you know, uh, or whatever, whatever the thing is, but there's something that you're not doing that you should be. That's the reason why you're not where you want to be. It's so comforting. I mean, it's always, it's the flip side of agency, right? Is like, if you have a problem, if you have pain, it's, awful and wonderful to be told that there is something you're just not doing about it. And it feels great to be able to be handed, especially like a genre. That's what, you know, self-help is, is it's a, it's a, it's a especially American genre in which like the chapter headings always tell you that you're just about to, you're like about four steps away from being able to buy your way into the solution. And, um, but the, the genre itself is there to just to nudge and to sort of fan the flames of a sense of empowerment, of course. And that is wonderful if you're talking about um, problems that can be solved with agency. It, it's never going to solve um, uh, the collective bargaining required to solve a, like a housing crisis or structural racism or, um, or hurricanes or, I mean, this is always the great conundrum with saying, um, hey, <laughs> which I'm always being like, hey guys, not everything happens for a reason. Um, there, but there, there is, we're, the, the truth is, is you're, we're all trying to find that place between hyper agency, you can solve everything with a self-help book and the kind of passivity that, that says that we can solve nothing. I mean, we can actually solve the problem of selling people assault rifles. For example, I would as a Canadian, I would just strongly encourage people to imagine that to be a problem they can solve or say getting vaccinated. I mean, there's all kinds of things we can solve. Um, but most of our, the things that take our lives apart are going to be in that sticky middle. Yeah. And it, it kind of makes me think of this, uh, moment I had with my therapist a while back, uh, when COVID first started, when I was freaking out about COVID. Um, and I remember having this conversation and, and he dropped some truth on me uh, that I wasn't prepared for. And he said, look, he goes, you know where all your anxiety stems from, right? And I said, "Uh, please enlighten me. (laughs) And he says, you're trying to control things that are not yours to control, nor should you have the uh, authority to control them? And once you stop trying to control things that are outside of your control, in this case, you know, life in general, like there are some controllables in there, but for the most part, life's going to do what life's going to do. Yeah. Like once you kind of let go of that, that's when the anxiety starts to subside. I like your therapist. We've also been in conversation about where areas where you need to grow. And that's what the rest of this podcast is about. I have some more questions. Just joking. Um, Yeah, I, knowing, um, I mean, that's that beautiful Al-Anon nugget of wisdom that just keeps being so valuable, right? Is the wisdom to, to, to know the difference between the things we can change and things we can't change. I think comes from the serenity prayer. So lovely. It's so good. And I love it. And also the harder life gets, the more you really don't have an option of letting go. Like, you know, I find that a lot of my time is spent, um, arguing with doctors about my care, um, arguing with insurance companies about my bills. And I think depending on, so like figuring out the difference between then that feeling where you're stuck in traffic and you just have to let go or the feeling like your life really does is contingent upon you being able to live in a, in a world of scarcity. And I, I think that is, I think that is such tricky work. And that's why we need to be surrounded by beautiful, kind, smart people who are like, oh, you gotta let, you gotta set that down. Yeah. There was a great uh, thing my, (laughs) my therapist told me too, (laughs) about who I think our therapists are friends. Um, Yeah. Shout out to therapy. (laughs) (laughs) I, it was right after I got sick, I was, um, I was so sad and I was so, 
overwhelmed. And I was like, I just, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And I was telling it to him like he was going to decide it for me. Like, like if I just explained it to him in the right way, he would be like, oh, okay, Kate, I'll, 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 I'll negotiate the terms. And, um, and I was like, I, I like, there's genuinely too many things that are life and death that I have to do. And I'm so tired and I'm so scared. And, um, and he was the kind of person who like, doesn't love to give advice, but I am, you know, just as you can guess, very bossy. And so, <laughs> so he was like, all right, I will tell you one thing that, um, that, uh, I learned about hiking the Appalachian trail. There's this um, long path through the Appalachian mountains that runs for miles and miles and miles and miles. And it can take people months if they choose to do the whole thing. And, um, and there's all kinds of long stretches, dangerous stretches between stops or other people. And, um, he was saying that people who are new to the Appalachian trail will pile on all the things that they think they're going to need for a, for a journey that that's long. So they're going to have like the extra, cooking pot and the super down blanket and the new insoles and the, and he's like, it's, this is why on a, on a journey that hard and that long, the first stop is the most important. And then people at that stop will say, um, the journey is, is, is going to be a hard one. And this is too heavy. Is there anything you can set down? And I thought that, that seemed that seemed like the right question is it's not that if you let go, it will be okay. <laughs> Cause it might not be, but that life will be long and it will be heavy. And that at every moment that maybe the, 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 the bit of like prudential wisdom, right? Like the ability to know is, is to just constantly say in that loving voice, like, is there anything you can set down? Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Our therapist might be brilliant. Um, <laughs> Wow. Yeah. And I I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, you know, from a support perspective as somebody from the outside, you know, how we can be better about supporting our loved ones who are going through those, those trials and tribulations. And, and sometimes it's just saying, you know what, I'm here for you, whatever you need, like you can lay it on me and then shutting the hell up, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, I think you've got it worked out. You've got such a like a nice open face that people would want to tell their problems to. And, I think, and you make such good, generous space for people. And you laugh at their jokes, which always makes people feel better. Like all of that is the, it's the, um, yeah, it's the like not. And I think the feeling that you get when you're around someone like you is um, that you're not scared of them. You're not scared of how unfixable their problems are. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to ride that compliment through the end of the week. Um, I appreciate that. That's true. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it, it it's an honor and a privilege to be able to talk to people like you for, for one thing. And, uh, you know, that has never been lost on me or my former uh, partner, Adam, in this. You know, it always felt like just a, a gift to be able to do stuff like this and to be able to talk to people, yeah. um, you know, uh, like this. So I really appreciate it. But, um, before I let you go, so talk about, by the time we air this episode, your new book, oh, will yeah. be out, Great. which Hooray. is on your shirt right now. So. Oh my gosh. Oh, is <laughs> yeah. it? That's so yes. funny. That is yes. true. That is not on purpose. That's just cause I was working out. Um, I love the people. I, I have such a great team and they realize that almost everything that we love saying, we love putting on tank tops or on pennants. And so the, the shirt says there's no cure for being human. Cause yeah, that's the new, that's the new book. And I am the, the first memoir that I'd written, the everything happens for a reason and other lies book was, um, really trying to wrestle with those theodicy questions, the, 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 the fear and confusion and the, of, of what it means to be an unexplainable question about suffering. And, and that was really wonderful for me to get a chance to talk about when I was really in a, in a state of crisis. Um, and then, you know, wonderfully I kept living, but then the more I kept living, the more I was like, well, crap, (laughs) well, what do I do now? I mean, how do you live when life is a chronic condition? And, 
And so I was handed all of those kind of easy cliches like, you know, just be present or carpe diem or, um, yeah, just like intense pragmatism and bucket lists and, um, and that sort of implicit gospel of immortality every time someone, you know, hands you a wrinkle cream and, uh, and I was like, oh, okay. So it turns out that this is, this is a different kind of like that living is really hard. And figuring out how, like, how do we live? Like, who to listen to? So that was the joy of writing this book, was to kind of comb through these different cultural formulas we're given for how to live and then ask, um, so how how then do we live when there is no when there is no solution to our finitude? What kind of courage does it take? What kind of love does it require? What things just stay unanswered because they are unanswerable or unfinished because they are unfinishable. So that was, that was the, that was the book I got to write. Well, I I think it's going to be a a huge help to a lot of people who are out there who, who really just want to hear and need to hear the fact that like there are other people out there who are struggling through life. Cause as you said, life is really difficult and no one makes it out of life alive, you know? Yeah. Um, but they just need permission to say I'm not okay. <laughs> and, uh, so I appreciate the work that you do. And, Thanks. um, and last question for you is when you were going through this and, uh, looking for potentially resources, uh, as you were going through this and continue to go through it, yeah. um, where were some of the places you went? I know you mentioned, you know, uh, being fortunate enough to work in a, a place where you're surrounded by other theologians, but <laughs> that was convenient, but not everyone yeah. wanders the halls of a divinity school. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, um, I love, and I love recommended readings. So I put a lot of those on my website too, because this is a, I think it's such a fun ongoing question because there's so many great minds on this, but, um, so, uh, I just reread, uh, Jerry Sitzer's book. Um, what is it called? A grief. It was so good. I, I like had it on my other desk. It was something like, um, no, a grace disguised. That's what it's called. A grace disguised. It's lovely. It's about his, um, uh, the, he lost his uh, wife and his mom and his kid in the same tragic accident. And he was trying to figure out, it's a very gentle, loving book about living with grief. I love it. Um, I'm a huge fan of blessings because I think part of the work of blessings is in acknowledging the the duality of our experience, the, like the, what I always say, like have a beautiful, terrible day, but that kind of feeling. So, um, uh, Jan Richardson, who's a Methodist pastor, has a great book called The Cure for Sorrow. And um, it's just blessings. We love blessings. Um, I uh, We've had, um, I, I love, um, Philip Yancey has a new book coming out about his experience, his memoir, about uh, about his, 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 how his theology of grace came out of his own biography. And it's, I really thought it was beautiful. So yeah, some of it is just in memoir and some of it is, um, in just being able to like elegantly name the, the condition that we have. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. I'll put all of those links of course in the, in the show notes so people can, uh, can link to that. But, um, Thank you so much. This is such uh, a pleasure. You are so fun to talk to. Aww, uh, thanks. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. This was a joy. Absolutely. Anytime. So folks go out and grab the new book. Uh, this podcast will be out right around the time the new book comes out. Uh, so uh, go out and get it. There's no cure, cure to being human. And uh, you can pick up obviously the rest of um, Kate's works as well. So thank you so much. Thanks, friend.
Bye.